0: copy of the scriptures. I invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Hebrews and we are finishing up chapter 7 uh, this morning. Now a reminder that the writer has been dealing uh, for some time now with the reality uh, that the reason why Jesus should be clung to and not rejected, why if you are a Jew who has come to embrace Christ, Why you ought not to go back to the types and shadows uh, of the old covenant is because Jesus is a superior priest and high priest. And then he has brought out the text from Psalm 110 in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Referencing uh, the king of Salem uh, that... Abraham met uh, after a battle uh, in Genesis chapter 14. In chapter 7, that reality is expounded and why Jesus needs to be a priest after a different kind of order than the Levites and a different kind of high priest than that of the Aaronic high priest. And having uh, dealt with all of that, we saw last time in verse 25, it is because of this, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, completely and forever, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest, that is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless... Undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. First for his own sins and then for the peoples. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever let's pray oh, father in heaven thank you for uh, this time now to open and to expound and to apply your word of truth and father as one said long ago sirs we would see jesus and we do desire to see more of our savior that we may trust him and love him that we may enjoy the sweet comfort that comes from knowing what he has done on our behalf. And, Father, if there are some who are wavering uh, in their faith, some considering leaving off, Lord, may they be bound afresh with cords of love to the Savior. And, Father, for those who have never known this great high priest, Father, we pray today that one holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, would become most precious to them as they look to him and trust in him in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine that uh, you have been hired by one of these companies that does surveys. What fun, right, to have that be your job. But some people do this. And let's say uh, you're going to go down to one of the local shopping centers, maybe one of the malls. And you're going to ask people these questions. You're going to stop them and, and say, this is your first question. Do you need a priest? Interesting question. And then the second one, if they say, Why, well, yes, I do, ask them this. Why do you need a priest? Now, living where we do in, in North America, uh, it would be very difficult for many to separate those questions from the notion of the Roman Catholic priesthood, and so they would be thinking, well, you might say, well, I'm not Catholic, and even if you are Catholic, you might be thinking, well, well, why would I need a priest? Why would a Catholic person need a priest? Well, if a baby needs to be baptized, or if you need to go to confession, or you need to go to the mass, or maybe if you're going to have a church wedding, or maybe if you're dying, or for some, because of Hollywood, maybe you think, well, if I'm possessed by a demon, then I'm going to need a priest. But for most people, if you ask that question, do you need a priest, they'd probably say something like, either I'm not religious, or if I'm religious, I'm not Catholic, Now, let's imagine that you could go back some 2,000 years to the land of Jerusalem, and now you're saying to a Jew, do you need a priest? Do you need a high priest? You see, now we're touching on something that's not tangential but vital to their religious life. They would answer, if they were at all religious, why, of course I need a priest. God tells me That I need a priest. I always need a priest. All my life, week by week, month by month, year by year, I am dependent upon a priest. And now you ask the question, why? You don't need a baby baptized. You don't need to go to confession. You don't need somebody to marry you. But you answer this for two simple reasons. I need a priest because the God I worship is unimaginably holy, and because I am thoroughly sinful. You see, for that man or that woman long ago, they could not imagine going to God directly, worshiping God, or being made right with God without. The system laid out in the law of God in which the priesthood was absolutely vital. The work of the priest and the work of that one man known as the high priest. Again, if you lived at all with a sense that the God before whom I must give account is holy and that I am not. That I have sinned and in the language of the book of Romans fallen short of the glory of God. And if you know, as we saw in our recent studies, that we must all stand before the judgment seat. That I must one day, like it or not, believe it or not, want to or not, that one day I must stand before this holy God... And give an account for the totality of my life, my thoughts, my words, and my deeds measured against the perfect law of God. Then you say, It is most necessary that I have somebody to intercede. Somebody to offer sacrifice, someone to pray for me. So, again, do I need a priest? Of course. Why? Because I am sinful and because God is holy. Now, the question may be further broken down as you're having this conversation. What kind of priest do you have? What kind of high priest has been given? And the answer is those whom the law appoints. Levites, and then one from the lineage of Aaron, the brother of Moses, as high priest. And now an altogether more pressing question. That's the kind of priest you have. But is it the kind of priest you need? It's possible That the priest that the law appointed is not sufficient for the deep, the depth of my need. And that's the question that's before us in the text this morning. Now, as we come to the text, I want to begin by looking at this matter of our need for a high priest. I've already been dealing with this to some degree. Secondly, I want to consider the insufficiency of the appointed priest and high priest And then finally, the glory of the promised high priest. Consider, first of all, our need for a high priest. We read, and really what we're getting at is our need for a certain kind of high priest. And it's found in these words, verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us. Suitable for us. Needed by us. The high priest that I have been describing, the preacher is saying, is the kind of high priest, when you understand all of this, it's the kind of high priest that you and I desperately need. We need, if we understand the Bible rightly, and understand God's character rightly, and understand the judgment to come rightly, and understand our own lives rightly, then the whole of my life, As a Jew, I would have gone through the appointed religious system with the thought that that priesthood and that high priest are not really suitable for the need that I have. And so what I have needed all along, and what the scriptures have been pointing to, is that there would one day be a high priest of a different order, a high priest appointed not by the law but by an oath, a high priest who is, has, as we have seen, the power of an endless life. And this kind is suitable or fitting or needed for us. It is fitting for our particular need. And this points to the reality of not just our sin, but the greatness of our sin. Now I know it's not necessarily popular to talk about sin, and uh, sometimes even in, in some of our settings, we, if we're, we're going to talk about sin, we want to we brush by it as quickly as possible to talk about grace and mercy and, and all of the rest. But sometimes we need to feel the weightiness what Paul calls the sinfulness of our sin. You see, our condition both of of these Jews then and all that went before and all who would follow, as well as all Gentiles, our condition as human beings, Jew or Gentile is such, that we could not save ourselves. And that the whole of the sacrificial system, what is being brought out here? Though appointed by God for a specific purpose, was not sufficient in and of itself to bring about a peace with God and a freedom in our conscience. Now, our pride can make a statement like that offensive. So much of the sense of modern self is built upon the mantra, you can do it, you're enough, I am good, I have a good heart, I do not need a savior or a salvation outside of myself. And we're very urgent about that in many places, don't don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And so, what is being said is, you don't really need grace. You do not need mercy. You certainly do not need to have blood shed for the remission of your sins. And if you do sin, and if there is such a thing as sin, it's no big deal. You can handle it. You can pay the debt. You can overcome. But think here of this first century Jew. They have had in their possession for centuries the oracles of God. And they believed that the scrolls given to them, Genesis, uh, and uh, through to what we would say to, to the end of Malachi, the, the old covenant, their, their Bibles are structured a bit differently uh, than ours, uh, our English versions are. But they would say that that old covenant given by, over the centuries by God is the revelation Of the person and the character and the holiness and the will of the God who made them and brought them out of the land of Egypt. The God who had entered into a covenant with them. That God had created by his decree a system by which the people could and would approach him. A tabernacle and then a temple. The Ark of the Covenant, the lavers, the curtains, the tables, the walls, the doors, the priests, their robes, their incense, their turbans, their sacrifice, the blood of spotless lambs, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats. And there were these things that kept them out. Don't get the idea that you could just walk into the temple like You'd walk into a church or walk into a cathedral. You were not allowed. The priests were allowed to go in. And then behind the veil, only the high priest. And that, but once a year. You stood afar off, as it were, and others drew near for you, offered sacrifices on your behalf. You didn't slaughter your own animals, burn your own animals, offer your own incense. Someone did that. The law appointed them to do that for you. And what you were seeing in all of that was the transcendence of God and the holiness of God and the otherness of God and the reality of your own sin and falling short of his divine glory. And God had said to offer these variety of sacrifices. And we've been reading about some of them in our Old Testament reading. We've gone through in recent months Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and are wrapping up Deuteronomy in the coming weeks. God had said to offer these sacrifices, sometimes for peace, sometimes as thanks, but especially for forgiveness. And these animals were brought to men. Men, again, appointed by God because of their lineage, because of their family relations. Men appointed by God, but listen, just men. And what this text reminds us, and we'll come back to this a couple of times in the exposition is that these are are though appointed by God and though allowed to go in to the holy place, you realize they have needs too. They have sins like your sins. And when you begin to realize that these priests need a priest and the priests that they need need a priest and the high priest needs, as it were, a high priest. Someone who could offer a great sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And in hearing that and in seeing that, what you come to realize is that all of them need the sacrifices they offer as much as you do. And they need sacrifices offered for themselves. That's on the one hand. And then on the other, what of the thing that they offer? So you have imperfect men offering animals that are called spotless. They're they're, they're innocent. But what are they? What do I offer for my sin? My humanity. Do I offer a a goat? A, A little lamb? A big bull? What do I offer? How could they really, fully, truly represent me? Now, true, they are innocent. They have not sinned. And they do not have defect. But how in the world can a bull make a man right with God? Especially when I know that though I offered it today, that I'll need a different one tomorrow and a different one next month, and another one next year, and on and on and on. It has gone for thousands of years. Listen to the words of the Heidelberg Catechism as it addresses this issue. Question, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment And be again, received into favor. That is, if our sins demand a just recompense from God, what can we do? And here's the answer. God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment. Either by ourselves or through another. Ah, all right, thank you. So the question comes, can we by ourselves make this payment? And here's the answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Some of you know what it's like to be feel trapped into a, uh, a debt, maybe some credit card debt that has a 30 40% uh, penalty on it. And so you go and you pay, you pay, they say pay $200, you pay 200. But then the next month you find that the debt's actually greater than it was, even though you've paid on a payment. And you think, how can I ever, ever get out of it? And in regard to God, you never can. Lord, I, I, Lord, how about I, I'm going to do something to take care of the sins of last week, just last week, just seven days. And while I'm doing that, I'm sinning all the while falling short of God's glory. And I get to the end of offering the sacrifice and I'm further in debt than I was. That's the idea. And then the question comes, can any mere creature pay for us? A bull, though pointed by God, a lamb. Now listen, can a mere creature pay for us? No, in the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Has that ever gripped you? Has that ever come upon you, that reality? See, for some, you say, why is not my son or daughter in Christ? Because this hasn't ever gripped you. Why do people go to hell? Because this has never gripped them. Why are people made in the image of God indifferent to God and to God's will? Because this has never gripped them. Because sin is no big deal to you. Because God's holiness is no big deal to you. By grace, have you ever been brought to the place where you have thought that if the God of the Bible is real, and if I am accountable to him as his creature and must stand before him and have the record of my thoughts, And words and deeds brought out. Then I am hopeless and helpless. Unless someone like me. Because a lamb is not like me. Someone like me. Outside of me. Comes to my aid. So that's something of the greatness of the need. Consider. Secondly, the insufficiency of the appointed high priest and the priesthood in general. But there's a focus here on the high priest. Verses 27 and 28 again. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the peoples. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. So two matters are brought out here. I'm going, to, I'm going to take them out of order. I'm going to deal with the second one first. And, and, and the two things are that they have weakness and that they are sinful. Okay? They have weakness. The, men appointed, the man appointed, and, and what a thing it would be to be appointed as, as the high priest. What a great honor. In so many ways that would be. And yet, this man had weakness. I've already touched on this to some degree, but the text reinforces it. Now, why do do we know they have weakness? Well, because they're human beings. They have frailty. We have seen earlier in this book or this sermon that was preached, the book of Hebrews, as we have argued as a sermon... We have been told earlier in the sermon that Jesus is a sympathetic and merciful high priest and that he shows sympathy for our weaknesses. Remember that? Jesus is sympathetic for our weaknesses, our frailty, and our humanity. This frailty, we have been reminded in the context, has to do, for the priest, it had to do in some cases with the limitation of their service. They had to retire at the age of 50, and even if they didn't do that, they would eventually die. The best of priests were but men. The most merciful and sympathetic of them, and not all of them necessarily were, but the most merciful and sympathetic were limited, limited in their wisdom, limited in their ability to serve, limited in their capacity, limited in their effectiveness. They're probably, you know, and there would have been things that would have been very disappointing, just like your pastors are sometimes. You want your pastor to fix everything, make everything right, fix everything in the church? We, it's, not gonna, it, it's just isn't going to be able to happen. Not because we don't want it to. It's just that we're limited. We are human beings. They were men and therefore they were weak. Frail, failing, and yes, as we will see more, sinful. So who do you want inter, interceding for you? Who will carry your needs and your burdens before God? Who will represent you and take your sacrifice before the throne? Well, under that system, it was a person who had weakness. And you read about some of that weakness in the various stories of the Old Testament. But they were not only weak, they were sinful. All their sacrifices for you were preceded by sacrifices that they had to offer for themselves. You see, before I represent you, I need to represent myself. So you think about what was that like? Mr. Priest, I have sinned. Will you offer this for me? Perhaps you go and you say, I've done something very foolish and very wicked. I have been unfaithful to my wife. And he says, you know what? I was too, and when I offer that for you, well, it kind of reminds me that, well, I' better take care of myself, and then I 'll take care of you." How do you walk away from that conversation? Do you walk away and say, "Oh God, thank you for this system, created and given by the law you. Ask, Yes, certainly some comfort, but what comfort or hope is there in that? So you find the Old Testament writers is, could I offer all the bulls? Is Lebanon enough to burn? What can I offer? And who will offer it for me? You see, we can scarce imagine humanity apart from weakness and sin. I have an easier time. I grew up, uh, you know, in the, in the beginning of kind of the modern, what I don't know if it would still be considered the modern, the old comic book age. I was born in 1963. So that's the year, like, Spider-Man comes out and Fantastic Four, 62, 63. That's when all these superheroes, and as a little kid, I, you know, I was reading these. I remember thinking, yeah, if I get bitten by an animal, I, I, I can gain these powers under the right circumstances or fall into a proper vat of, vat of toxic waste and whatever the case might be. And I can actually imagine myself. I can sit there and imagine myself, bullets bouncing off me, flying. And, people, and you think, oh, yeah, I've had that same fantasy. But you know what? I, I've never been able to imagine myself without frailty and without sin. I, I can't picture it. Because that's, that's what my life is and our lives are. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And these men were told now they should have sympathy for sinners. And if you're in the business of offering sacrifice for sins and people come to you with their sins and their problems and all their faults, you could get pretty frustrated with that, pretty angry with that, and then you remember your own infirmity and weakness. But this infirmity, while it allowed for sympathy, also means that the consciences of God's people would at times be troubled. The sacrifice is not sufficient. Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor is the priest himself sufficient. Appointed by the law, by divine decree. Though in accordance with God's revealed will, these priests and their sacrifices showcase their deficiency to do for sinners... What needed to be done. And so we come now to see the glory of the promised high priest. See, so you're reading your Bible. You're reading through the Psalms. And you come across Psalm 110. Beginning, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. And then you read verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I, I can't go back in time and know what it would be like to have read that without the book of Hebrews. I can't, I can't ever read that without knowing that, hallelujah, there has come a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But no doubt you would have recognized and realized something of this tension is being addressed. That the sacrifices appointed and the men appointed were insufficient. And the thought is, will there ever be a sacrifice and will there ever be a priest unlike those Levitical priests and the Aaronic priests? Will there ever be a high priest who when I go to him and say, I have sinned in this way says, I will pray for you and offer for you though I have never been where you have been. And I will offer for you something that will never ever need to be offered again. Will there be, has God said, has God promised? And listen, and he only, he promised it once and that's all he needed to do. And it would be a thousand years. And I was thinking this morning uh, of the text and, and what Peter says, a thousand years. You know, don't, the Lord's not slack concerning his promise. Does some count slackness? Now, if you guys asked me to do something I said, hey, I'm, I, prom, I promise you I'm going to do it. And 10 years go by. You would think, "Jim's oh, pretty slack concerning his promise. <laughs> well, because 10 years is like 10 years. <laughs> But to the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. And so he is able to make this promise. And that promise was to give hope born of the realities we have been looking at. My sin is such that it requires a better sacrifice offered by a better high priest. And the Levitical priesthood, though appointed by God, isn't cutting it. So that in the law, the hope of full forgiveness and redemption is not given. But there was hope given in the word of an oath. Not in the law, but something after the law. Something after the appointment of those priests. A hearkening back to Genesis 14 with a promise of what would come a thousand years later. A sworn promise, a covenant given by one who cannot lie. So that in these two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have hope who have fled to Jesus for refuge. Remember he has said that. And we have here a brief but wonderful exposition of the person and the work of Jesus. Of his person, five statements are made. And these are in many ways overlapping truths, not not five separate and distinct truths. And in bringing these things out, the preacher, the, the writer to the Hebrews, is making a distinction between the frailty and the weakness and the sinfulness of the appointed priest and the glory of the promised high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And while these men of weakness who need to offer sacrifice for their own sin the preacher says but our priest is holy now the priest under the old covenant had a would wear something on them that would say holiness unto the lord and have that stamped on you on your on your body on your clothing but is that what they wear in their hearts Yes, they were holy because they did holy work. They were involved in holy sacrifices and holy things. But that did not make the man himself in this sense holy. And the word here means undefiled by sin, free from impurity. Is pure light in him there is no darkness at all. Behold the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, perfect, blameless. Never, ever... Ever did he sin no sins of commission that is no transgression of the law but this is the one that just blows my mind because we don't think about sins of omission much we're so busy confessing our sins of commission but what about the things undone that we should have done that are also sins For the law not only requires thou shalt not, but often with that there is a thou shalt. There was never a thou shalt that he did not do, there was never a thou shalt not that he committed. He was ever and always in the days of his flesh the beloved Son in whom the Father was well pleased. The text then tells us he was harmless. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, this is a word that means most simply not evil. It's really the, the breakdown of the compound word. There was no guile, nothing duplicitous, nothing that corrupts, no shade of wrong. The only other time this word is used, it's in Romans chapter 16, where it talks about the way that false teachers beguile the hearts of the simple. It's that word, simple. He's simple, he's he's non-complex, in that sense easy to read. You know, we like, we talk about, people talk about modern heroes and and villains, they're all nuanced. You know, they're this admixture of of good and bad, and our Lord, there's a purity in our Lord. Some translations read that it's blameless or innocent. And then we read undefiled. Again, a compound word taken from a term that means to stain or to die. He's unsplattered. Some of you know I, 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 I try to cook, and and because I mostly cook unhealthy things with uh, grease, I'm, I'm often frying things, and I almost never walk away unsplattered. One of you, dear ladies, even bought me a, um, an apron, and I'm so lazy, I. Sometimes don't take it out. I too often don't take it out. And, of course, I'm usually wearing a shirt that I haven't worn before. And I'm, ah, I'll do a quick spaghetti sauce and blurt, blurt. Oh, I got spaghetti on me. I got, you know, whatever it is on me. I, I stain, I, I'm stained. No, in, but in our Lord, no, no stain, no pollution, no contamination. Nothing to sully his character or his motives. There's no lie, no deceit. And then we read that he's separate from sinners. Now, this could be taken in a way that perhaps we would read that and be disheartened. Because our hope, is it not that he will be a friend of sinners and that he loves sinners? Did he not take on our nature and, and have the appearance of one that would be sinful because he, he was a man? Did he not take on our iniquities, our, our nature to bear our iniquities most certainly? But what is being said here is that while... If you take the whole of the book, while he sympathizes with our weakness and our frame, he knows our frame. He knows we are dust. And he bore a full and true humanity. Now I said we can't imagine humanity without weakness and without sin. But Jesus had a humanity without sin. It was undefiled by sin's. You see, I, I, I can't hear any of you confess something to me, if some of you did. Said, so, Jim, I'm struggling with something. Can we talk? I need to let you know I, I blew it in this way. I did this. And as disappointing or sad as that might be to, re, to hear, it's rarely without some pang of conscience. I may not have done what you have done, but I, I know that I too have disappointed and fallen and gone my own way in sin. You see, we may hate sin and especially certain kinds of sin, but we're not separate from our fellow sinners. We may think, ew, I'd never do what you did, but we're in the same camp. (laughs) Maybe in a different part of the camp, but you're in the same camp. Again, they sin differently, perhaps, but the same disease ravages all of our hearts and all of our souls. And he can say, I know what it's like to be tempted. In fact, I have been tempted far beyond anything that you have because you gave in. I know what it's like to have Satan attacked. But he cannot say, I know what it's like to sin. Tempted in all points, but without sin. Never was the line crossed. And here's, here's the point. You need this. You see, both for the sacrifice to be offered... You see, so it might be comforting. Some people think, well, wouldn't it be more comforting to think, well, Jesus knows what it's like to mess up. And, to, you know, I, I, I want to go to somebody. And No, he says, look, I can be sympathetic. With the weakness in your humanity, I understand the temptation. But if Jesus did that, he could not be the spotless lamb of God that takes away our sin. He had to be perfect. But a perfect sacrifice offered by an imperfect priest would destroy the transaction. And so we need one like us, but not like us, separate from us in that. Fifthly, we read of him that he has been made or he has been exalted above the heavens, made higher than the heavens. Now, it wasn't Jesus ever and always higher than the heavens. Yes, but so what we're dealing with in our Christology, two natures in one person. And what can be said of the one person can be said, or one of the natures can be said of the one person. He was as the eternal second person of the Godhead ever and always exalted. The heaven and the highest heavens could not contain him as Solomon said in his prayer of dedication to the temple. And yet for a season he was humbled, being not only fully man, but a man who hung upon a cross in full obedience to the covenant of redemption made before the world began. And in honor of his obedience, he's given the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess to the glory of God the Father that He is Lord. The highest honors that heaven affords, all the praise and the glory that belongs to God Himself, is given to the God man, Jesus, who died and rose again. And so we read, and the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath that came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. So we've seen his person briefly consider his work. And two things are brought out at least here. First of all, in his perfection, he did not need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And secondly, the reality that it was so complete and so perfect that there is no need for it ever to be done again. This is how he's different. High priest, what did you do last year in Yom Kippur? Offered the sacrifice. What are you going to do this year in Yom Kippur? Offer a sacrifice. What are you going to do next year in Yom Kippur? Offer a sacrifice. You go to the Lord Jesus and you stand in his presence. Or Jesus, will you ever die again? Will you ever suffer again? No, I did it all once. This is among the reasons why we reject the Catholic Mass wherein a priest offers up in his prayer the body and blood again and, again and again and again and again and again. And this is one of the reasons why in those places there will be a, not just a cross, but what they would call a crucifix with the image that's supposed to be our Lord Jesus on it, because he is the ever-suffering son. He does not sit emblazoned in glory. There is not in that there an empty tomb. But the idea that our sins require a fresh sacrifice. And even then it might not be sufficient and you have to go to purgatory. Now in your heart you can understand that, can't you? And if we were writing the story, would we not have something like that? What am I going to do about all of these sins... Of my past and of my present and of the future, and Lord isn't a or surely you must suffer again, Lord, I, I'm so sorry that you have to endure sorrow and pain afresh, because I have sinned afresh. But the word of God thunders, He did it once for all. He said it is finished. He could, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, sit down, having offered his body and blood. And he did what no one else could ever do. And I want to say this, and that's why some here need to rest far more than you do. We wrestle with this. You see, I know, but I still sin. I'm so guilty. Some of you live with such condemnation, with such a sense of your sins and failure. I'm not here to tell you that none of that's true. Of course, it very likely is true. And I want to say, would that some have felt their sins more than they do. Some are very careless, but if all you feel when you come to God is your sin and not gratitude. If you come and you, and you fear condemnation but have no hope. And there are not the stirrings of joy and praise. Of there is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty sins. I'm not saying be casual about your sin. John said in his first epistle, I write these things to the church. He says, I write these things that you might not sin. It is good and right that there be a proclamation of the will of God and the holiness of God that would so grip us that by the spirit we would walk in obedience in such a way that we would have consistent victory over our sins. That's the will of God. Not to be caught in a constant morass. But he says, I write these things in order that you may not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it's hard to hold those realities in tension to the degree that they don't nullify each other. Well, because I have an advocate, then sin doesn't really matter. No, I take sin seriously, so I can't enjoy the glory of my advocate. We take those sins open to that fountain open for sin and uncleanness. And you confess those sins with the hope and the joy that he will forgive you those sins and cleanse you for all, uh, from all unrighteousness because he doesn't have to die again. And whatever sins you will commit for the rest of your life, some of you might have 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And whatever sins are committed in the last day of the last week or the last hour or the last minute of your life before you are translated into glory, Jesus paid for those sins as a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice 2,000 years ago. No condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. And so I asked at the beginning, have you ever felt the reality that there is a God in heaven and I have to stand before him and I'm not ready that has caused you to flee to Jesus? So I've asked, have you felt that reality? And some of you were able to answer, uh, uh, Jim, I have. But now I ask, do you have that hope? You see there are some who live so much in the sense of the judgment of God so much with a sense that God is never anything other than disappointed in you no sense of confidence no sense of joy no no sense of boldness no sense of access no sense of i'm accepted in the beloved And that when we say and preach and say something like, my friend, Jesus has taught us that you are as loved of the Father as he is. That you look around and say, I think that's true for them and them and them, but not for me because, because, because what? Because he didn't die? Because he was not a perfect priest offering a perfect sacrifice? If that's true, then you may despair. But if it is true, we have a song. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus pardon receives. And so there's hope for the guilt-ridden child of God and hope for those who see their sins to come to this one who died and who rose and who pleads by the Spirit for people yet to come well let's pray and let's ask god's blessing on these things our father in heaven we thank you for this time together to consider the person and the work of your son thank you father for that one holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners and exalted higher than the heavens we thank you father for what he has done for us may we ever be bound to him we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. We'll take just a moment.